Welcome to the Insecurity Project Podcast. Most people think the best you can do with insecurity is mask it, manage it, or medicate. I'm convinced this is a problem that can be solved for good, and that's what this show is all about. Join me for weekly 10-minute Tuesday episodes, live coaching demonstrations, and world-class interviews on the subject of overcoming insecurity. Now on to today's show. Hello again, friends, here on the Insecurity Project with Jamin. Today, I have the great privilege of interviewing Christopher Avery, the CEO of The Responsibility Company. He's also the author of two books, Teamwork is an Individual Skill. That's a very interesting title, and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about that briefly. That's That book's 20 years old and a real game changer from what I understand. Uh, and the second book, The Responsibility Process. So Christopher is also known as the responsibility guy. So knowing that practice two in the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity is about responsibility, I was super keen to question Christopher on his work about responsibility and what insights he can add. So uh, Christopher, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Jamin, right? It is. Yeah. Good, good pronunciation. Thank you, Jamin. Uh, I'm pleased to be here and look forward to this. Should be fun. Yeah, wonderful. Should be good for your audience and for my audience. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, that's that's the plan. So, look, uh, as with all my guests, I'm fascinated by your backstory, how you got to where you were, and specifically your interaction with your own inner workings, your your beliefs, the structure of your world that both hindered you and and enabled you to be where you are. So, can you take us back to where it began for you and tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in your world and and the role your parents played in shaping your beliefs about yourself? Yeah. Uh, so. I grew up with a hypercritical one, one parent who was very angry, uh, suffered abuses in her youth that she never dealt with, uh, in terms of counseling or, or other words. And, and I didn't find that out until I was much older. And so she was hypercritical, judgmental, explosive, angry. Uh, and I actually started developing illnesses at a very early age, um, which later I learned was, you know, a result of my my spirit's reaction to that energy. Mm. Uh, and um, I became very interested in, you know, behavioral change theory. Uh, I learned kind of in my teen years that I was a, uh, I was very demeaning. I sounded a lot like my mom and I assumed I learned the pattern from her. Uh, and I didn't want to be demeaning and dismissive towards other people. And I couldn't stop myself from doing it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so I went in search of my integrity. I went in search for tools beyond, you know, behavioral conditioning, uh, to try and change my behavior. Um, and that started an amazing search of self-discovery. And so, so I, I called it going after my integrity. Which going after your integrity can, that's that's an interesting was, can you tell us more about what that means well i i so on the one hand i wanted to be as you you know talk about in your work i wanted to be a good person uh showing up and being supportive and on the other hand i wasn't acting that way and operating that way and i couldn't just change it by by brute force will mm-hmm. right and so I, I, you know, speaking of identifying the problem, I identified the problem as I did not really understand or know my own integrity and I wasn't in integrity with my true self, right? And I was willing to admit that. And I did that at a pretty, you know, pretty mid twenties, yep. something like that, early twenties. Um, I went to graduate school or yeah, I went for graduate school, PhD in organizational science and leadership, uh, when what I really needed was counseling. But you know, a lot of people in our field do that we we're smart, we figure we'll go get a degree and study this thing and, uh, and change ourselves. And um, so I'm kind of a cliche, you know, PhD uh, that, that fell into that. Um, and uh, when I was in my early 30s, I fell into this work around the responsibility process that had been started by two other men. And it was a multi-year phenomenological study 
of identifying the um, the characteristics of the mental states when people are either what's called above the line or below the line, which is common language that started with Werner Earhart, I believe, and Est, and came into Landmark and into lots of other lines of thought is you're owning it or you're not owning it, or you're above the line or you're below the line. Yep. And um, these two brilliant men were simply having interactions with people they were coaching and they were starting to build this chart which we now call the responsibility process and and it's a stack of words and if you can visualize i'm talking to your listeners now if you visualize this stack of words uh, at the bottom of the stack is labeling and one step up from that is justify and one step up from that is shame one step up from that is obligation then there's the line above obligation and above that is responsibility and so what this what this process shows is actually a pattern in the mind that seems to be true for all of us and how we react when things seem wrong in our mind so we could say when things in our world go wrong but it's every time we assign something the condition of wrong i don't want that right so when we have something we don't want then our minds go into a hyperactive search for cause and effect and our mind actually hands us an answer and the answer starts at the bottom at lay blame right it's his fault or it's her fault and um so I'll, you know i'll I'll stop by saying that when I was introduced to this model and the two men that had been working on it for at that time about 10 or 12 years uh, as a phenomenological study of the human condition, uh, at that time I already had my PhD, I'd already been exposed to an amazing number of models of psychology and communication sociology. And I sat dumbstruck looking at this model on a flip chart in, in the office of this guy. And I thought to myself, that's the most powerful model of normal psychology I've ever seen. I've got to know more about that. And, and I think this is what I've been looking for, you know, for the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years of my life. So that ties my parents to my upbringing to me finding my work in responsibility. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. So can you take us more into that that light bulb moment and the work that was then uh, taken by you to find your integrity? So tell us what that was like coming up against that model and coming from the place that you'd come from and then finding your way into responsibility in a way that, that actually hit the ground and transformed you. Sure, thank you. Um, so... You know, as as best I can remember, and it's probably you know, this is, you know, we make up a lot of stuff to fill in the gaps of our memory. But here's my story about what happened in that moment. Okay, was um, you know, I looked at this model and I thought to myself, you know, I really want that. I want to understand this process in my own mind, and I want to work this process or pattern in my own mind. I'm a pretty ambitious guy and I, I suddenly realized how much time I devote especially to blame and justify at that time I identified with blame and justify more than I did with shame and obligation but since then I've learned that um, the, the, the more ambitious uh, quote good citizens we are in this world uh, our, our big work to be done is around shame and obligation. We actually learn how to get off of blame and justify pretty quickly. Um, but anyway, so I sat there and I said, what if I, I said, I realized I spend so much of my psychic energy trying to understand the world and why I don't have what I want or why, why I'm where I am. I spend so much of my energy below the line in blame and justify and shame and obligation. I said, what if I could get 5% of that back and get it above the line, you know, in, in responsibility, which is actually a place of very clear thinking 
and a place of immense creativity and generativity and resourcefulness above the line. It's responsibility in this case doesn't mean being good. Right? It, it means actually being free and being powerful and mm -hmm. being generative and creative. Um, and I just, you know, kept running calculations in my head, right? What if I could get off of these lower states 1% faster, right? What if I spent, what if I ended up being able to spend 50% less time there, 75% less time there? You know, gosh, what could I, what could I get done and how happy would I be? I want that. Mm. <laughs> so that, that's my memory of that moment, mm. sitting in that office, you know, and, and also, you know, so much of psychology and psychiatry is built around um, the pathological part of the mind, right? Either either it studies it studies the ends of the curves, the the bell curve, right? Most psychology and psychiatry works on either the the pathology at the bottom end of the sick person, the, the demented, or you know, uh, or schizophrenic, or looking at simply the genius or the hero or the great leader or something. But, you know, what I saw in this is it, it appealed to the great middle, to all of us who are normal, that this is actually how we, how our minds work and mm -hmm. how we view the world. And each one of the states is its own point of view. It's so it's a mental state and each state has its own cause effect logic. Right, which below the line, it's all victimization and powerlessness and nothing I can do and something outside of me has to change, um, you know, for my life to get better. Um, and, uh, and once you realize that, then what you realize is everybody on this planet is running around with this pattern in their mind and uh, their point of view is so much colored by which mental state they're in. Uh, and you know, intelligence is not, is not the factor here. It's, it's emotionalism, um, and how we react to supposedly things going wrong. So I think that's, you know, that was my thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, would you mind unpacking those, those states for us a little, sure. in a little depth so the listener can understand and, and, and so I can understand even more, Absolutely. uh, blame, justify, shame, obligation. Tell us more about yeah. those. And let me just suggest if you're listening to this and you have access to a, a browser, you know, just type in responsibility.com and, and click on the menu and the process and you'll be able to look at a poster, this graphic. Um, so again, we'll start at the bottom, labeling. So labeling is a mental state it gets triggered every time something goes wrong. Uh, well, let's just say the process, the responsibility process is in a pattern in our, in our mind that gets triggered every time something goes wrong. And we actually have a very precise psychological definition of something going wrong, which is when you get stopped while in process towards something you want. So you've got a, so you've got an internal conflict in your mind between two tiny cognitions, two little teeny tiny thoughts in your mind collide. One is the thought of what you want, you know, fresh cup of coffee, whatever. And, and then you get stopped because, you know, somebody didn't fill the coffee pot or it burned or you spilled it down the front of you. And so now you have a problem because what you have is different than what you want in that moment. So, <clears throat> so, all problems are actually defined in the mind, which is, you know, your idea of the problem of insecurity, uh, it, you know, appeals to me there is that that problem is actually defined in the mind mm. and it's, and it's solved there, mm. right. As, as you, as you teach. Um, so when these two thoughts in our mind collide, uh, it throws off some angst, right. And, you know, we can call that frustration, upset, whatever. Um, guys, sometimes guys say to me, I, I don't have any anxiety. And I say, okay, pissed offness. And they say, got it. <laughs> so when that happens, it triggers this pattern. Uh, we go into this hyperactive search for cause and effect. And, uh, and our mind hands us an answer that says she did it. Right? Um, or they did it. 
and you know the the whole thing about who took my keys they were right here uh, honey have you seen my briefcase you know there's a little edge of of accusation uh in there right yeah yeah i so, mean my, i i couldn't find my bike light uh clip and and straight away i'm like well, it was there last time I saw it. So who's touched it? Someone has, right. has uh, there is, it must be my son. He must have moved it because I left it there. Straight right. we all do, yeah, we absolutely all do that as a coping mechanism. Yep. And so for me now, it's a signal device. And it's a mm -hmm. signal device because I can feel, I'm aware of myself when I'm starting a blaming thought. And because of my 30 years of practice of this, I catch myself in you know, a hundredth of a second, but I still have the thought because I'm still, sure. you know, I'm still human and this pattern is still in me and it'll never go away. Right. So, so I use it as signal device in terms of unpacking. So lay blame is a mental state, which means it can last for a second or a minute or a day or a week or a year or a lifetime, uh, or you can get off of it because it's just a mental state. And the idea of mental states very well validated, very well researched. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and this mental state has very simplistic cause effect logic in it. And the cause effect logic is that, um, uh, I'm at effect in the cause effect equation and my target <laughs> that I'm blaming is at cause, right? And so for my effect to change, then they have to change. Uh, and, uh, and none of us are very good at changing other people. Uh, so, you know, psychologists have told us for eons that that blaming and excuses are are uh, perspectives of powerlessness. Um, and of course, the reason is because we say that something outside of me has to change for me to be happy. So, if you move from blame up to justify, the only thing that changes is that in justify, instead of entity that we're blaming uh, now we're blaming a set of circumstances or conditions right so now it's the weather it's the culture it's the pandemic it's covid it's uh, the economy it's um, the process it's the bureaucracy it's yep. uh, you know it's the budget it's it's whatever it's a set of conditions that are causing us to have a problem um, and justify as a pernicious, if I can use that word, it's a wicked, the wicked smart uh, mechanism uh, because it's so easy for us to say, I didn't have time. Right? And yet anybody who's done the critical examination that you teach in your steps, anybody who's done the critical examination of that says, well, you know, you had all the time in the world, you just didn't prioritize it. Um, so, so we're so good at justifying and, and rationalizing, um, and letting of ourselves off the hook. If we decide to, so, so the way through this process is we've got a set of keys, which are the keys to consciousness of intention, awareness, and confront, which is what we can use and develop our consciousness around this. So if I can catch myself justifying and I stop justifying, then the psyche graduates me up to shame. Uh, and in shame, it's like this great sorting mechanism has tried external uh, vectors for two turns. So now it switches from external to internal. And that's all. So shame is just lay blame on self, right? So now I'm in both cause and effect, right? I did this to me. I'm the dirty dog. I'm a dummy. I'm a dolt, right? When will I ever learn? Um, what's wrong with me? We seem to ask and we've learned to ask. Uh, and we were taught at a very young age to ask because other people ask, what's wrong with you? And we learn if we call it on ourselves first, then we'll feel a little smarter. Um, and the premise in shame, though, there's a couple of things about shame. The premise in shame is that there is something wrong with me. And... <clears throat> And the issue here is that this is, it's in a different color on the chart. What you'll see, the two the lower two levels of blame and justifier in red, 
shame and the next level up obligation are in green. And the reason they're in green is because we call this pseudo responsibility. Right? So quote, responsible people, which I really mean good citizens, responsible people have been conditioned to beat themselves up when they make mistakes or get themselves into trouble. And we even say when someone is shaming themselves in a team meeting, someone says, oh, good girl, she's taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. right? So responsibility <laughs> is actually a synonym for all of these, <laughs> all of these words. Um, the other issue in shame is that because your focus is on what's wrong with you, uh, it's still a very simplistic cause-effect logic. Uh, and you're putting more psychic energy into demeaning yourself uh, than you're putting into actually having a creative solution. So what we help people to understand is, is while people seem to believe that they deserve, you know, all the lashes they're giving themselves, the, the real question is, you know, how long do you deserve, deserve to beat yourself up for being a human? And how, how long do you want to wait before you can get to the state of mind where you can actually overcome the problem? Mm. Yeah. So if we stop beating ourselves up, then we land in the mental state of obligation, which is another pseudo responsibility. Obligation is the mindset of have to, don't want to. It's the mindset of being trapped or burdened uh, in some kind of a promise or a pattern or a relationship or a commitment that you don't like anymore. And, and people constantly call that responsibility too. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you are, you are a responsible person. If you're doing what you despise, mm. <laughs> right. if you're doing what you're supposed to do, even if you hate it, you're responsible. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, so this is what's so freeing when people start doing this work. The responsibility thinking work what's so freeing is that they realize that they've been conditioned by society uh, to stack on so many coping mechanisms around shame and obligation uh, and what we do is start helping people see how to break through that uh, so obligation the test for obligation i give is um, you know how many of you have some stupid meeting you have to go to right hopefully not this one uh, who has some horrible, valueless paperwork you have to do, have to, right? The only reason you do it is because you have to. You'd get fired or arrested or in jail or fined if you didn't do it. Um, and, and I ask audiences, right, how many, how many of you tell your buddy, so I'd love to go get a cold frosty one with you after work, but I've got this kid thing I have to do, right? So we feel trapped by our children. Um, and, and then I end with how many of you have to go to your in-laws for holiday, right? Have to, have to, have to. And just to unpack obligation a little bit more, Jamin, uh, I get asked frequently by bosses. They say, Christopher, what's wrong with obligation? It gets the job done, doesn't it? Uh, I, you know, I don't care how people feel about doing it, whether they do it in obligation or responsibility. Well, there's two things about obligation that you might want to think about. The first is that in this mental state, your performance is barely adequate to get a pass. Right? So our, our, our motivation in this mental state is to survive the torture of being in that situation. So we're not highly motivated. We're not highly inspired. We're not highly creative. Our creativity is about surviving the hour and a half in the stupid meeting or the weekend at the in-laws or whatever it is. Um, so, so, you know, if you're interested in getting the most performance from your hiring budget, you know, you'd be interested in, in a culture of responsibility as opposed to a culture of shame and obligation. The other thing about obligation, uh, is that it builds up this stuff called resentment and the resentment is towards whoever or whatever it is that we think has us trapped the mortgage, the bank, the spouse, the boss, the kids, the elderly parents that are relying on us, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So, so you want me to talk about responsibility? Or you I, wanna... I was just about to ask everything, right? I can, <laughs> yeah. can tell us, tell us, right. get us above the line into responsibility. 
Yeah. So one of the things I really, really don't like uh, about this model is that there's all these ways to be non-responsible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I'd rather have one or two things below the line and five above, you know. Sure. But responsibility is responsibility. It's it's the word literally means the ability to respond. Mm. And so Stephen Covey said in between stimulus and response, there's a space and in that space is choice. And in that choice is your power and freedom. Right. Yet throughout our lives, we build autopilots so that so that we go from stimulus to react. We don't have a space between stimulus and response and we just stimulus react stimulus react it looks like this i hate broccoli i'll never date an engineer i'll never date a blonde i'll never work for you know that kind of person um, it's because we have one bad experience with it early in our life and we unconsciously create this program and it's a shortcut so that we don't have to do so much thinking and processing but the the issue is that you know we get to be 20 something 30 something 40 something or more adults and we're just full of programs of stimulus react instead of stimulus space response so um the idea of responsibility is uh is that if we're just willing to actually feel the the anxiousness which is you know some tiny micro 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 joules of energy in our mind <laughs> between two opposing thoughts if we're willing to actually sit in that and examine it so you know some of your steps are so similar to this if we're actually willing to examine our feelings about this and and look at it then uh, what happens is that we shift into a a mental state of responsibility where we feel our own freedom we feel our own power as a human being and we realize we have tons of choices and it seems like we have access to our full complement of of probabilistic or stochastic reasoning and logic in our mind we're below the line all the logic is very simplistic cause effect even mm. stupid right and and above the line in the mental state of responsibility, we have access to, to much resourceful, much more resourceful thinking and logic. So we call this the mental state of freedom, choice and power. And it's always available to us just like the other mental states are. Uh, it seems to take us a little more work to get there. Um, <laughs> and every human being, uh, of you know of, of any uh, age even adolescence or or older can recognize where you've gone through the process around some problem in your life right if you're a parent right then you've gone through this process and and decided to take 100 percent responsibility for that baby right even if it keeps you up all night um, and has colic and anything else if you're an open water sailor you've decided to take 100% responsibility for your provisions, for the maintenance of your boat and for the shape of your boat and for the weather and for everything else. <laughs> um, so we've all had experience going through this process. My, what I want for people is that they understand how it works in their mind and they can make themselves smarter at will anytime they want. So it's, it's really, it's a wisdom generating, tool if you understand how to work it yeah it's a it's a beautiful model and no wonder it was so transformational when you came across it um, and thank you for such a precise description of how that works it was just it was lovely listening to you explain that and trying that on and thinking it through and yeah i agree we've all had experiences of all those mental states and when it's mapped out so clearly i think it does make it easier to exercise more choice because you've got a framework to to then respond rather than react and um, so so thinking about you know your earlier description of problems i want this but i'm stopped so if you, if you think about applying this to insecurity specifically 
you know, I, I want to feel good about myself, uh, but I don't. I feel inadequate. I feel afraid. I feel uh, like I'm going to be found out as somehow lacking. I feel like I'm not good enough or I don't belong or I'm not worthy. There is some sense of insecurity about me, which is not what I want, but it is what I feel. Um, how do you see uh, this model of responsibility applying to the problem of our own thinking about ourselves? Yeah, good question. So we actually deal with that a lot because um, in teaching responsibility and mentoring responsibility, I have to be willing to face every problem every client has mm. <laughs> and help them, help them see their own way through that problem, see how they created it for themselves and see how they let it go. So we deal a bunch with insecurity. It usually comes to us with a little different language. I think you've chosen a nice word there for, a, for, brand, for framing it. It usually looks like a couple of things. One is need for approval, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and the other is uh, you know, seeing yourself as a, a fraud, not good enough, or thinking that other people can see how uh, untalented you are um, and that you're a, you're a faker. So those are, those are two of the bigger things that we deal with, but also shyness, um, which could be called insecurity. So the way we deal with this is, um, is we say the responsibility process is just a signal device in your mind. You can't change it. You, it it'll never go away. I don't care how conscious, you know, how, how much you ascend in consciousness. This is still the psychology of how your mind responds when things go wrong. So I still visit blame and justify and shame and obligation every day. I just don't hang out there for more than you know, yep. a microsecond. So then what are the tools? So the tools are three aspects of our consciousness, of our mind, that are capabilities we're born with, but society doesn't develop in us. And that is our intention. Uh, which is free will uh, and understanding our inspiration um, and what we want. Awareness, which is um, understanding what our attention is on at any one time, right? which is what most people equate with consciousness or change. Uh, so awareness is the most popular of these three keys, obviously. And then the third one is confront. So we actually use confront as a noun, as it is a, it is a, a mental capability, a mental power that you're born with and you can develop. And what confront means is the ability to face your fears, the ability to face your anxiety. You refer to it in some of the work I've seen you do as courage. Mm. Yeah. And so we actually help people build their intention muscle. Right? We help them build their awareness muscle and we help them build their confront muscle. And then they learn to use all three of them together to focus on any one problem. So I would say that in your seven steps for dealing with insecurity, to use my model or my language, I would say you pull confront right up into steps one, two, three, maybe four, right? And that is, you know, face the fact that this is your mind you created it this way yeah. you're the one that gets to change it mm. so i i would I, I would call that confront yeah yeah mm. um and then you know uh awareness comes in in terms of you know describing what the problem looks like right what is your attention on when you're feeling so insecure and describe that in all the different ways right an intention is, you know, what do you want in life? Mm -hmm. So the other way I would teach this, Jamin, or talk about it is in terms of the, the two mind model of an upper mind and a lower mind that's so often used um, these days. And, and the upper mind is often called the resource mind or the creative mind or the growth mind. And the lower mind is called the ego mind or the defensive mind or the resistant mind. And the, then the interesting thing about these two minds uh, is the drivers in those two minds. And in the lower mind, the drivers are approval, safety, and control. 
Um, and those all come from outside of us. Right. And in the upper mind, the drivers are our unique inspiration, our unique genius, our unique expression of our unique and authentic selves. Right. And what we teach in terms of awareness is that society pretty much uses the lower mind to condition you into being a, a good contributing member of society. Society doesn't really focus on your upper mind and develop it. And so, you know, um, I don't think that insecurity is, uh, is a problem that just some people have, right? If, if I look at the need for approval, safety, and control, right? It's a societal issue that just takes advantage of some opportunity that's already there for negative programming to be placed in the mind and then reinforced over your lifetime until, you know, I think you even referred to this in one of the pieces that I looked at from you is that, you know, you have so many repeated um, uh, thoughts uh, about this that has become uh, an embedded pattern uh, or program. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my take on. Yeah. Great. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so many. Yeah, the idea of insecurity is, yeah, is, um, if I can get somebody in a short session, uh, into their upper mind, into responsibility, their insecurity disappears for, mm. you know, that session, mm. right. For, for some period of time. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. Uh, one thing I was really interested to ask you about is, uh, it, you know, all, all the stuff that I teach around insecurity has come out of the overflow of my own experience, which has, which has a lot of strengths. And, and sometimes it has a few weaknesses because uh, our tendency to, um, you know, bring our own map to the world and impose it onto others and assume that's because that's my experience. That must be everyone's experience. But one of the things I found particularly useful in the responsibility practice, practice number two was, uh, moving from using the language of I need to take responsibility for my life, take 100% responsibility, to kind of taking a step back and realising, hang on, what if I already am responsible, whether I want to be or not? Uh, what if I could see that I'm actually not the actor in the story? I'm, I'm, I've had the pen the whole time. I've been the one creating these narratives. I've, I have been responding um, even when I haven't been aware of it. I've been the one forming opinions. So you know, to use Don Miguel Ruiz's great work in the four agreements, you know, no one has the power to bless you or curse you without your permission. And so invariably we have given permission away frequently and, and then cursed ourselves in the process. So this idea of seeing, oh yeah, you know, there's no extra step to take responsibility. It's the awareness of what already is. And then being more conscious about using that responsibility and that power uh, to create a world you, you prefer rather than creating one that you don't. Does that distinction work for you? Can you see any flaws oh, in that? Spot, yeah, spot on. I'll say a couple of things about that. One is responsibility is such a loaded word. <laughs> it's such a loaded word. And, you know, it's almost like, I, I mean, I think that's the right word for this work and for what we're doing. But it's almost like it'd be easier if we put agency or freedom or, yeah. <laughs> you know, choice or something else at the top of the chart power. Um, also, you know, when, so you can download a, a, a poster of the responsibility process from my site and next to each word is the definition for that mental state. And the definition for responsibility is this owning your power and ability to create, choose, and attract, mm -hmm. period. So some people want something at the end of that. And, and if they require that, then we say all of it, <laughs> your reality, your experience, owning your power and ability to create, choose, and attract your reality. And so then we break it down to say, you're always uh, creating, choosing, and attracting your reality, which which is what you just said, Jamin. Mm. You're just not always owning that you are. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it seems to change the game when, when 
people can see that because it's like, oh, look at this. I'm already powerful. I just have been using my power to get what I didn't want rather than what I did. So that means I must have it within me to turn this thing around. Yeah. I mean, you know, we get so, uh, let me see, my mentor, his name's Bill McCarley, and I actually call him the father of, of the responsibility process. Um, he's the primary investigator. He, he says, it's all you, only you, all the time. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, he said things to me like, you know, I'd say, how was your trip to San Francisco? He says, great, but... I can't figure out why I needed that clerk in the hotel to be so mean to me. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I'll be talking to him on the phone, you know, and he'll say, I don't know why I needed to have a car accident. Today. <laughs> <laughs> so the issue there is, you know, so, so a little factoid there is that it's easy for us to, to own the cool stuff, the, yeah. the stuff we like to brag and boast about. The real power comes from owning the ugly stuff, the stuff that we don't think we want, the stuff that we don't think we created. Mm. Do, you, do you use the, the NLP presupposition, people work perfectly in any of your work? Is that part of the, the foundational knowledge that you work from? Absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, people are always doing the best they know how, given their consciousness and yeah. the context, yeah. And the results they've created are the ones that they've actually chosen, whether they were aware of it or not. It's, they're not broken. It's not random. It's not a coincidence, of course. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm constantly, constantly uh, mentoring smart, smart people. You know, I, I work for some of the busiest and, and uh, you know, most successful people in the world. And the corporate work I do is all in high tech and entrepreneurship and expensive, ex, you know, I, I call it expensive uh, employees, right? That you want to be resourceful. And I'm, I'm constantly telling them, uh, what if there's nothing wrong with you? Mm. Right? What if there's nothing wrong with you? What if there's nothing wrong with you? <laughs> and if, and if you get, that you were doing the best you knew how, the absolute best you knew how in that moment, given your consciousness and the context, if you knew that, then you could eliminate shame. Yeah. And if, and if you knew that they were doing the best they knew how in that moment, then you could eliminate labeling. Mm. Right. Yeah. So there's also, I mean, I, I love that coming from NLP, but there's, there's, a couple of other references for that. Okay. Um, and and the other reference references are uh, uh, Jesus, Buddha, and Socrates, mm -hmm. who who all agreed that the only sin sin is ignorance, right? and that's the ignorance of the fact that you are um, operating within your level of consciousness. Right. Therefore, the only solution for that is to uh, raise your level of consciousness. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's how do people do that? So if, if people have heard that and go, yeah, that's a profound idea. Um, uh, can you give them something just to grab onto as a way of going, all right, what, what, what can I do right now that's going to increase my consciousness and move me out of ignorance and... Uh, what would you say? Well, I, yeah. So, um, so for one, th so my frame of reference would be uh, David Hawkins' book *Power Versus Force* and his map of consciousness. Are you familiar with that work? I am. Yeah, I've just read that book recently. Yeah. Right. So he is my favorite spiritualist and and scientist. Mm. And for your listeners, he did a, you know, a after he reached enlightenment after owning one of the largest psychiatric practices in New York City for many years, he had spontaneous enlightenment than he did what most people do and, and leaves society and goes and lives you know, by yourself because everybody looks too crazy uh, to you because you're seeing their belief systems. But he actually 
kind of lowered his consciousness and came back to society and then started a 20 plus year research project using uh, muscle testing. Mm. And he established uh, a, the, he established what uh, Carl Jung said that we would find, which is there's a database of consciousness that we're swimming in. And, um, and that you could access this database of consciousness through muscle testing. And he created a scale of, of from one to 1000, a logarithmic scale. And the highest level of consciousness available to humans is, is, is 1000. And all the great avatars calibrate uh, at or close to 1000, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Krishna, and others all calibrate up there. And the crossover from negativity to positivity is 200 and the world is operating at just a little over 200 and the higher you achieve on the scale the more people below 200 that you're offsetting mm. so what Hawkins says is that you actually don't have to do anything to improve the world in fact a lot of what people are doing thinking they're trying to improve the world is making a mess he says all you have to really do is is be willing to increase your own consciousness. And so he offers plenty of tools to do that. Buddhism offers amazing tools to do that. Mm. The, the real origins of Christianity do that. Now, what happens as religions form and go through the years is people at lower level of consciousness um, bastardize the principles. And so the, the consciousness level of the world's religions are actually much lower than the spiritual principles that they were built on. So go find those, go find those spiritual principles. Practicing 100% responsibility is one of them. Yeah, that's common across every major spiritual tradition. Um, it's one of the elements in uh, Alco Alco Alcoholics Anonymous, all the 12 step programs and, and your seven steps reminded me of 12 step <laughs> programs. Yeah. You know, there's some similarities there. Mm. And those programs all calibrate at 540 on Hawkins map map of consciousness 540 is unconditional love that's not a bad place to live mm. you know? so um, so you know what what do I do I actually try and study the origins of um, most of the world's uh, religions and I'm kind of a universalist with a small u that's not my religion, but I'm a universalist and I see common truths across all of them and I pursue those common truths. Um, I'm uh, somewhat of a student uh, of Buddhism. Um, I spend uh, uh, two periods a day in meditation, uh, morning and evening. Um, but for me, my primary practice of ascending consciousness is this right here, because blame, justify, shame, and obligation are all at very low levels on Hawkins map of consciousness and responsibility is at a very high level. Mm. So if every day I'm simply doing my work of catching myself below the line and getting myself to above the line, I'm doing the work that Hawkins says there is to do in terms of, of advancing the world. That was a wonderful answer to that question. Thank you for taking <laughs> thank you. the well, time. Thank you for, well, thank you, for, thank you and, for asking. And thank you for a very embodied answer too. That's one of the things that I just think is such a gift to the world is, is an embodied teacher, someone who has, hasn't just understood uh, a set of principles but has lived them and can speak out of the overflow of that experience. And, um, yeah, when they show up, their presence is very different than someone who has some head knowledge about an idea. So thank you for being you. Thank you for your work in the world. It seems like a, a good place to leave our conversation today, but but I'll give you the opportunity to add anything that you think we've missed. Is, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, yeah, I, I would add this again, attributing this to David Hawkins, and I've been rereading Power Versus Force uh, just recently. Um, so along with my morning meditation is a period of, of you know, reading deeply contemplative literature. Um, so he says a, a primary practice 
and maybe a practice to start with is is simply willingness to rise to a higher level of consciousness mm. right so instead of saying oh i really should be better <laughs> you mm. know i really have to start doing this i need to take responsibility which you kind of mentioned earlier mm. is reframe all of that right into i am willing to be more loving i am willing to have more joy in my life i am willing to understand my mind better i am willing to have more compassion i'm willing to have more grace and so willing calibrates willingness calibrates at what he calls acceptance and i can't remember the level of acceptance but it's quite high in the 500s or 600s so just by saying to yourself that i'm willing to grow right, is tapping into a higher what he calls an attractor field right the invisible attractor fields that that we're wandering around in so i i, I would add that <laughs> yeah that's wonderful I, I love that language thank you yeah. uh where can people find you if they've been fascinated by this conversation and would love to understand more about your work where's the best place to send them so uh responsibility.com is where you can find lots more about the work i'd be happy for you to connect with me on linkedin uh, if you do so tell me why uh and if if you're in the if you're in the business of lead generation or or business development i'm likely to not accept your invitation unless you tell me that you heard about me here and you're and you're not prospecting um, so those are the best places well look thank you so much for your time it's been a very rich conversation i've benefited greatly and i'm sure the listeners have done too so sincere gratitude Thank you, Jamin, and thank you for the good work that you do. I, I, you know, I think your model is really good, and um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of intersections, you know, between uh, our our work. So one of the reasons I asked you <laughs> for information about it was I wanted to, you know, I wanted I wanted to see if it's something I could get behind and support. So, mm. yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's been great connecting with you. We'll leave the conversation there. Thanks again. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Insecurity Project podcast. All you need to solve any problem is the proven framework and someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. If this is your year to be insecurity free, jump on the insecurityproject.com and begin your journey to become unhindered by getting a free copy of the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity.